Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. And all of that happens in this story. (laughs) And a lot more. Glory to God. I hope I whetted your appetite for what we're going to go into. Glory to God. The first two stories about the sheep and the coin emphasize God is the seeker. The one who finds and rejoices. The third story doesn't look so much at the divine side, but at the human side, the depravity, the sin, and then repentance and recovery and rejection. This is the dramatic story of the parochial son. It's a moving story. And all of it is deeply, uh, as we go through it, I, I know you'll find it interesting. And I pray that it's impactful on the thinking of anyone who's gripped by the divine truth contained in this story. Amen? Now, the story doesn't contain everything that needs to be said about salvation. Let me bring that point up right up front. It's not the whole salvation theology thing. It does lead us to the cross, which is yet to happen because it's a story of reconciliation, and there is no reconciliation apart from the death of Christ, who paid the penalty in full for every sinner, you and me included. But the cross is not in the story because it's yet to come. And so this is not a full theology class on salvation, but it deals with some of the essential elements of sin, recovery, rejoicing, and rejection. Now, basically we have three characters. You have the younger son, you have the father, and you have the older son. And really it should be divided that way uh, and I want to be able to divide it so conveniently into three parts that uh, you know I, I want to make sure you understand each character's background okay so we'll we'll go through it we'll take it as it comes but we will begin with the younger son amen so as we open the story of the younger son I want to take you to two things to think about first, his shameless request. I mean, he asked for something that was really a slap in the face to the father. And then his rebellion, shameless rebellion. He wasn't ashamed of anything. So let's begin in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse number 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of this estate that falls to me. And we'll just stop there for a minute. The first son is not the only character. In verse 11, you have the man and both sons. That's why, you know, it's a tale of the two sons. It's not really the tale of one son, even though we're studying one in depth. It's the tale of two sons. And the ending of the whole story indicates that it's the other son, the one we don't even think about, that's really the main 
objective of the story. But we'll call this younger son the prodigal son. And I suppose that you, if if I asked you what prodigal meant, you'd probably want to go look for a dictionary and find out exactly what prodigal means. Well, let me fill it in for you a little bit. It's a word, an old English word, and it's not used much, but it basically means spendthrift. And you know what that word means. Somebody who's wasteful. A person who is senselessly extravagant or self-indulgent. And that's a great word for this first son. That's why it's lasted so long. It accurately identifies him. But it's not a word that's in this story anywhere. It's just a word that the old English versions came up with that fits so well. This young man is the classic illustration of wasting your life, wasting your money, just in self-indulgence. And we can all think of people like that, can't we? That's why it's called the story of the prodigal son. Now, let's look at the story and understand that it's really a story about two sons and their loving father. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of this estate that falls to me. Now when Jesus said that, put yourself, remember we're putting ourselves in the setting, this this ancient Middle East village, a tight-knit society, one with rules and customs and a culture. And here the Pharisees and the scribes who are in the audience, they went, oh, Man, that is absolutely an outrageous request. How could he say something like that? I mean, he's got their attention right off. Now, they can understand this son is probably not married because he wants to go and, quote-unquote, sow his wild oats. So he's probably in his late teens. He is completely disrespectful to his father. He lacks any love for his father whatsoever. There is not an ounce of gratitude in his heart for the, the, the legacy of the generations of his family that have provided for his father and one day ultimately for him and his family. In fact, the truth of the matter is for a son to say that in the culture of the ancient Middle East village life is tantamount to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're in the way of what I want to do. You're a barrier to me. I want my freedom. I want my fulfillment. I want out of this family right now. I've got other plans. They don't involve you. They don't involve the family business. They don't involve anything to do with this village. I don't want anything to do with it. I want nothing to do with you or any of you. I just want what belongs to me and I want it now. Basically, he told his dad, I wish you were dead. Now, in a culture where honor was so important, a culture based upon the Ten Commandments, you know the one, honor your father and your mother? This had been so ingrained into their personifications and and their minds and their culture, where honoring your father was the top of the social list of life, any son who made a request like that, 
such an outrageous request that's understood by everyone to be wishing his father was dead? Well, you see the way it worked. You don't get your inheritance until your father dies. But to do this, to ask for it at this point, essentially is not only to affirm that you consider your father dead to your life, but it was also, on your own part, trying to commit, basically, suicide. Because anybody would expect that that kind of request of a father would be responded to with a minimum, a slap across the face. Amen? That was a typical Jewish gesture in that day to show rebuke for such disrespect on the part of a young son who had benefited from everything the family had worked for for possibly centuries, accumulated all the riches of the generations before them. That's the way he treats his father? Oh, a slap across the face with no small amount of force would... oh. He would be shamed publicly, probably taken to the village square and dispossessed of everything and perhaps probably even considered to be dead and kicked out of the family. That's how serious this breach was. And that's why in verse 24 when he comes back, the father says, this son of mine was dead. He says again in verse 32 to the older brother, this brother of yours was dead. It was even customary in that time and place to hold an official funeral, if you will call it that, for such disrespect. You were done. You were out of the family. You were dead as far as everyone in the family was concerned. As far as everyone in the village was concerned, you would be dead. And the only way back into some sort of restitution, some way to earn your place back in the graces of the family for the dishonor that you brought, it was, it was a very serious, serious thing. And this system was clear to everybody. The father, at the head of the honor list, then came to the older brother, then came to the younger brother. That's how the inheritance worked. So what the younger son did was completely shameful to the highest level. The lowest member of the family, lowest in line of honor, expressing aggravation and irritation and hatred about the father. And the fact that he's still alive and he's standing in the way of what I want to do. That's the highest degree of shame imaginable in that society and in that culture. There was no way Jesus could portray greater shame upon a person than by that act. So in the social structure of Israel, that was the supreme act of shame. And his request, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. He uses the word estate. The Greek word is tasusoyas, or it's used only here and nowhere, nowhere else in the New Testament. It means the goods, the property, the portion. He's asking for material stuff. 
land, animals, buildings, whatever of the family possessions he's entitled to get, he wants it now. And in a two-brother family, according to Deuteronomy 21.17, the estate would be divided on equally, not equally, on equally. The older son gets double what the younger son gets. That means two-thirds goes to the older son, one-third goes to the younger son. So whatever was one-third of everything that the family had, that's what he wants. And they must have had a lot. Because we read further on in the story that they had servants and that dad hired musicians and dancers for the party. They hired men whom they employed outside of the normal family servants. They had animals. They had cattle. They had a fatted calf. So they must have had substantial enough estate that he thought if he got his third, then he could fund his rebellion pretty well. And all he wanted was the amount that went to him, his inheritance. But listen carefully. When you talk about inheritance, you're also talking about everything that comes with the material things. You're talking about the management, the business management of the the estate. You're talking about leadership. You're talking about responsibility to provide the resources for the family. When you receive your inheritance from your father, you are literally receiving the responsibility to manage all of the assets on behalf of the family. And to add to that, to continue to build the estate for the family of the future. Something that's been lost on our government here in the United States. But that's another story for another day. So with the word inheritance comes responsibility and accountability for future generations. He didn't want any of that. So he didn't use that word. He didn't use the word, uh, the Greek word is kleronomia. That's the normal word for your inheritance that we just discussed. He used the word tasusios. He says, I just want my stuff. I don't want any leadership. I don't want any responsibility. I don't want any accountability. I don't want anything to do with this family in the future. So I'm not taking on any responsibility for this family now or ever again. I don't want to care for anyone. I just want my stuff. No leadership, no responsibility, no accountability, not to be part of the family any longer. I don't want any part of anything to do with you guys in the future. That is a serious, serious thing. And all of this indicates that he's been living under the Father's authority very reluctantly. He's miserable. He wants his freedom. He wants his independence. He wants distance. He wants to go as far away from all restraint and accountability as he can get. He doesn't want to obey his father anymore. He doesn't want to be directed by his father. He doesn't want to have to answer to his father. He wants nothing to do with anybody who even knows him. He wants out of the family with all he can get 
in order to finance the lifestyle he wants to live. Now, a father in the Jewish culture at that time could give gifts to his children as he wished. I mean, he owned the whole thing. He could assign portions of their estate. At some point, he could say, okay, this is the two-thirds you're going to get as the older son. This is the one-third you're going to get as the younger son. And even if he did that type of assignment, they could not take actual possession of it until he died. They would just manage it and run the business of their portion until he died. He never relinquished that to his kids. So, though he would say, this will be all yours, he would not say, this is yours now, take it over. He would always be the one responsible. And if he did apportion to them and say, now, I want you to start to learn how to manage your area of responsibility. So, manage this area. And according to custom, he would have access to everything that was earned as they managed their estate. So he could keep a strong, firm hand on the reins. The younger son didn't want any of that. He's not asking to know now what he's going to get in the future. No, he's asking to have it now. Why should he wait till his father dies? He wants it now. Now, the village would probably get word of this, and it, you know, the, the communal living and all that, and it, word would spread very quickly. They would expect the father to be angry and ashamed and dishonored publicly. They would expect him to be absolutely furious with this son. They'd expect him to slap that boy across the face publicly, to rebuke him, to shame him, to punish him, to kick him out of the family. And maybe even hold a funeral telling everyone, this boy is dead to me. And this is the first surprise in the story. Go back to Luke 15 and verse 12. And he divided to them his living. He divided his wealth between him. You know what the word wealth is in the Greek? Bios. Life. Biology. This is the life of the family. This is what the family's life for generations has produced. This is his living. This is his source of livelihood. And he says to divide it. Now, some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes probably thought, well, yeah, he's just telling them that, you know, this is what you're going to get. This will be yours at some point in time and the, 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 you know, by and by, the sweet by and by. All this will be yours, and, but you can begin to take responsibility for it now and, and I'll be here to oversee it and help out. Maybe that's what he meant. He was just divvying it up according to Deuteronomy 21, 17, one-third, two-thirds? No. This would be pretty shocking because of the way in which it was requested. If the father had done it of his own will, because he had such respect for his sons and trusted his sons and had love for his sons, okay, it could be understood. But to this kind of son, with this kind of request... 
for a father to do this was shocking stuff. And it would have caused the Pharisees to gasp, really. Rather than strike him across the face for being so insensitive to his father, the father gives him what he wants. He gives him what he wants. You don't want any part of the family? Okay, here's your stuff. He extends to him this freedom because the father is willing to endure the agony of rejected love. Now remember, we're tied all of this back to the gospel story, right? Okay, keep that in the back of your minds. The father in this story is willing to endure the agony of rejected love. And this is the agony that's the most painful kind of any personal agony, the agony of being rejected. The greater the love, the greater the pain when that love is rejected. This is God. This is God giving the sinner his freedom. There's no law in the customs of Israel that would forbid a father to do this. So he's not breaking any type of law. He's not doing this because he thinks this is best. He's giving the sinner what he wants, his freedom. He's giving it to him because that's what the sinner wants. It may not be in the sinner's best interest, and no amount of talking is going to change the sinner's mind. So the father has to endure the rejected love and just pray for this sinning son to someday wise up and come home. Now, some of you may be experiencing the same thing from your children right now. And you can relate with a special heart-wrenching agony at what I'm saying right now. And my prayer for you is to have your prayers answered in this area. Amen? Now, I want you to see the sinner's not really breaking the law, but he is demonstrating the absence of a relationship with the Father. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. Amen? The sinner has no relationship to God at all. None. None at all. Doesn't, this, the sinner doesn't love God. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. He wants nothing to do with the family of God. He wants nothing to do with the future of the family of God. The sinner wants no accountability to God. He wants no interest in God, doesn't want to answer to God, doesn't want to submit to God, doesn't want any kind of a relationship at all. And in fact, he has none. And God the Father, in the agony of rejected love, lets the sinner go. It's like Roman 1. It says, he gave them over. He gave them over. Now, let's go back to verse 12 in our story again. He divided his wealth 
between them. We still have two boys in the story at this point. Because once it's divided, then it was clear to the other brother what was his also. So they both, in fact, received their portions. And though I said this was rare, and there was no law forbidding it, it was very, very unusual for this to happen. And it could never happen under these circumstances with that kind of son making that kind of request. But Jesus used this example to shock the Pharisees. And it worked. Amen? Jesus, I mean, sorry, Jewish law says, according to the Mishnah, which is the codification of Jewish law, that if this was done, if the father decided to do this, the sons still had to hold the property until the father died. Only then could they do with it which they pleased. Up until that time, the father was still in charge and oversaw how they managed the property. And the father had a right to everything that was produced in terms of income. But that that didn't suit the younger son. No, no. He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it now. Well, step one was to get the father to agree to split the estate. And it didn't take long for step two. Let's go to verse 13. And not many days later. And this begins the second thing that I told you that you'd have to think about in the story. First, the shameless request, then the shameless rebellion. Just a few days, not many days later. He didn't wait very long at all. He couldn't wait. He figured he's waited long enough. He's sick of being in the Father's presence. He's sick of living in the house with the Father. He's sick of having any accountability or any relationship with the family. He doesn't love his father at all. He has absolutely no love for his older brother either. And his older brother obviously has no love for him. And by the way, as a footnote, the older brother has no love for the father either. Well, he didn't leave. No, but that's right. But the older brother has no love for the father. In fact, when the younger boy comes home and the father's happy, the older brother's angry because he has no investment in the father's affections either. He's equally unloving, equally ungrateful, even though he stayed home. He's the hypocrite in the house. Amen. So the father basically has no relationship with either son. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.